listening to Let the Bible Speak. Let the Bible Speak is the radio ministry of the Free Presbyterian Church. Stephen Pollock is the pastor of Free Presbyterian Church of Malvern, Pennsylvania. The church is located at the junction of 401 and Mallon Road. Thank you for joining us today as Dr. Pollock opens the Word of God and lets the Bible speak. I'm glad you're able to join us again for another episode of Let the Bible Speak. Today we're recommencing our studies in 1 Timothy. We're in the very last chapter of Paul's letter to Timothy. And today we're going to look at the verses 15 and 16. Paul has been bringing closing exhortations to Timothy. He's exhorted him to flee worldliness, to follow righteousness and godliness, faith, love, patience, meekness. He's told him to fight the good fight of faith and to lay hold on eternal life. And as Paul has given these exhortations to Timothy, so they have echoed down through the corridors of time to ourselves. Timothy is to be an example as a man of God, and therefore we are to follow Timothy as he follows Christ. As Timothy is given this exhortation, Paul enforces the weight of the exhortation with a charge. Verse 13 says, I give thee charge in the sight of God. And part of that charge is a reflection on the certainty and the sovereignty of Christ's return. He is to keep the commandment without spot, unrebukable, until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ. And it is the contemplation of Christ's return that causes Paul to enter into a time of doxology, a time of praise. And so he says in verse number 15, which in his times he shall show, who is the blessed and only potentate, the King of kings and Lord of lords, who only hath immortality, dwelling in the light which no man can approach unto, whom no man hath seen, nor can see, to whom be honour and power everlasting. Amen. And it's these words of doxology that I want to consider today. And with those words in our ears, let us pray and ask for God's help as we come to his word today. Eternal God and Father, we are coming today to consider these words of praise and adoration that come from the Apostle We ask, O Lord, that you will help us to consider them carefully. We pray, O Lord, that they would indeed encourage our hearts, that we'd have the right thoughts of thee, our living God, and that we'd praise you and live for your glory. In Jesus' precious name, amen. So this portion of scripture, I said, is Paul expressing praise unto God. He's thought about the return of Christ, and that Christ's return, all of the universe, all of creation, will acknowledge Jesus Christ to be Lord of Lords and King of Kings. And as Paul has contemplated the certainty of Christ's return, so it has provoked praise in his soul. And that's the first thing I want to note with you today. It is the praise in this doxology, the term Doxology is used to speak of an expression of praise to God. In our church we sing a doxology, praise God from whom all blessings flow. 
It's known as the doxology. The word doxology comes from the Greek word for glory. In other words, the words that we use in this form of praise are words that express the glory of God. And before going on, it is helpful to mark the point that this is what true worship is. True worship is exalting, expressing the glory of God. True worship is to speak of the glory of God. Too often, worship has degenerated into a man-centered experience. Worship becomes about how I feel, not about what I say or sing. The true Christian will feel tremendous joy when they reflect upon the Lord, but they will also know reverence and awe and humility. Worship may not always make us feel happy. There are times, particularly in the Psalms, when doxology and praise is offered to God, but it comes in the form of a lament. As the psalmist contemplates the glory of God, so he's very conscious of either his own sin or he's conscious of the iniquity in the world around. And so considering the glory of God in worship, may not always lead to the feeling of happiness, but it will lead to the feeling of true spiritual joy as we contemplate the glory of God. Worship, in its very essence, is the heart lifting up the worth of God. And in light of the worth of God, the soul of man then bows down before God. So in worship, our souls bow down and our hearts are lifting up the glory and the worth of God. Another challenge from this is the spontaneity of the doxology. It just appears as Paul considers a matter of truth. He he flows into the praise of God. He did the same in chapter 1 in the verse 17. Now unto the King eternally, mortal, invisible, the only wise God, be honour and glory forever and ever. Amen. Paul has such a God-saturated life. His heart is so full of the Lord that when he contemplates the Lord, there is this overflow of praise to God. As he considers the Lord, he expresses that verbally. He says, listen to me, this is, this is my God. Hear the glory of my God. Out of the heart, the mouth speaks. A heart that adores God will then praise God. A heart that's informed from the word will then praise God in a correct manner. Sadly, we cannot do this because we are not learned in who God is and we're deficient, our hearts are deficient, our minds are deficient. And so, as we see the spontaneity of Paul's doxology, may it encourage us all to know our God and to live in close fellowship with our God, that our lives indeed would be God-centered and God-saturated. That's something regarding the praise of this doxology. Secondly, though, Let's note the parts of the doxology. The words that Paul uses, who is the blessed and only potentate, the King of kings and Lord of lords, who only hath immortality, dwelling in the light which no man can approach unto, whom no man hath seen, nor can see, to whom be honour and power everlasting. Amen. So there are certain parts in this doxology. Paul acknowledges God's supremacy who only hath immortality. He is the only 
potentate. He alone is God. There are many false gods. It is within fallen humanity's nature to invent false gods. But there is only one true and living God. God made himself known to the nation of Israel. He did so through Moses. He called Moses to himself. And in the course of time, Moses was used of God to deliver the Israelites from the bondage they were experiencing in Egypt. Part of the purpose of God as he delivered the people from Egypt was that they might know the Lord. In Deuteronomy chapter 4, Moses explains to the people, and he says to them, Unto thee it was showed that thou mightest know that the Lord, he is God, there is none else beside him. They had the privilege of hearing the voice of God out of heaven. They saw the work of God as the Egyptian army was buried in the waters of the Red Sea. They saw the mighty power of God. And as Moses would tell the people, he says to them, Know therefore this day and consider it in thine heart that the Lord, he is God in heaven above and upon the earth beneath there is none else. When Moses uses the term Lord, he's referring to Jehovah, the God who has shown himself to be the God of Abraham, Isaac and Jacob, the God of Israel, the God of the Exodus. This is the one true God. This God that then is made known in the person of Jesus Christ, who came into the world showing us the Father. Solomon, back in the Old Testament, when he dedicates the temple, acknowledges the supremacy of God in similar language. In his prayer, he says, Lord God of Israel, there is no God like thee in heaven above or on earth beneath, who keepest covenant and mercy with thy servants that walk before thee with all their heart. There was always in the history of the people of God in the Old Testament the dilemma and the challenge of false gods. Joshua would tell the people when they enter the promised land, choose you this day whom you will serve. Later on in the days of Elijah, the people would halt between two opinions. And yet when God shows his power as Elijah's sacrifice is consumed, the people saw the sacrifice, they saw the fire fall from heaven, and they fall on their faces and they said, The Lord, he is the God. The Lord, he is the God. God is the only potentate. He is the blessed God, happy and content in himself, the self-sufficient God. Jehovah, the great I am, who is and was and ever shall be. This is the blessed God, God in his singular supremacy. The second thing that Paul acknowledges is God's sovereignty. He is potentate, king of kings and lord of lords. Simply the God of the Bible, the one true and living God, is a God who rules. The very hearts of kings are in his hand. Every earthly ruler has power only as that power is granted them from God. Isaiah chapter 40 and the verse number 12 says, Who hath measured the waters in the hollow of his hand, and meted out heaven with the span, and comprehended the dust of the earth in a measure, and weighed the mountains and scales and the hills in a balance? 
Later on, Isaiah says, Behold, the nations are as a drop of a bucket and are counted as a small dust of the balance. Behold, he taketh up the isles as a very little thing. God is the God who brings princes to nothing. He maketh the judges of the earth as vanity. God's supremacy, God's sovereignty was noted in a particularly interesting account in the Old Testament. Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, had become very powerful in the world. His power had brought within his heart tremendous pride. And the king spoke in Daniel chapter 4, Is not this great Babylon that I have built for the house of the kingdom by the might of my power and for the honour of my majesty? What arrogance and what pride Nebuchadnezzar showed. He thought he was king of kings and lord of lords. But while the word was in the king's mouth, there fell a voice from heaven saying, O king Nebuchadnezzar, to thee it is spoken, the kingdom is departed from thee. God will not have a rival to his honour and to his glory. And so what follows in Daniel chapter 4 is how God humbles Nebuchadnezzar. I encourage you to read the portion. It is a a fascinating display of how God is able to humble the heart of a proud and an arrogant king. And at the end of the days, Nebuchadnezzar gives his own testimony. He says, I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted up mine eyes unto heaven, and mine understanding returned unto me, and I blessed the Most High, and I praised and honoured him that liveth forever, whose dominion is an everlasting dominion, and his kingdom is from generation to generation. And all the inhabitants of the earth are reputed as nothing, and he doeth according to his will in the army of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth, and none can stay his hand or say unto him, What doest thou? Nebuchadnezzar, being humbled, his own pride being addressed by the judgment of God, comes to acknowledge there is only one true God whose dominion is an everlasting dominion. There is only one true God who is sovereign, who can do according to his will. That is what God does. None can stay his hand or say unto him, What doest thou? We live in times when we believe the rulers of this earth hold sway over our lives. Please remember, it is God who rules over the rulers of the earth. God is the only sovereign, the only potentate, the King of kings and Lord of lords. Paul then goes on to acknowledge God's immortality. He says, who only hath immortality. God is the eternal God. He has no end and no beginning. He is the only self-existent one. All of us owe our existence to God. But God's existence is owed to nothing else or no one else. To Moses, God says, I am that I am. All effects have a cause and God is the ultimate cause. He is not an effect, but a cause of all effects. He is the eternal, indestructible God. He never weakens or runs out of power or grace. Every part of creation is dependent. God alone is self-sustaining. He hath immortality. He possesses immortality in his very being. And so, in grace or immortality comes from God. We have that. Paul referenced that in the next letter to Timothy. But is now made manifest by the appearing of our Saviour, Jesus Christ, 
who hath abolished death and hath brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. O God, who hath immortality, brings immortality to those who trust in Christ. That we come through a glorious resurrection to spend eternity with the Father, and with the Son, and with the Spirit, enjoying fellowship with the triune God in the immortality of our new created lives. It is God who is our hope, that as we face death there is hope in the God who hath immortality. We then see in the fourth place that Paul reflects upon God's unapproachability. He says, dwelling in the light which no man can approach unto. You consider what God says to Moses in Exodus chapter 33. Thou canst not see my face, for there shall no man see me and live. God's unapproachability. And then finally, God's invisibility. God is spirit, as Paul says, whom no man hath seen nor can see. This is a doxology that highlights so much of the doctrine of God. God's supremacy, his sovereignty, his immortality, his unapproachability and his invisibility. These things that are taught in the word of God as God reveals himself to us. So we've looked at the praise in this doxology, the parts of the doxology. And finally, let's contemplate the power out of this doxology. Because as Paul concludes his words of praise, He says, to whom be honour and power, everlasting. Amen. To God alone belongs all honour and power. The word power here speaks of God's dominion and God's reign. He alone has this right to rule over all. He who is the only potentate, the King of kings and Lord of lords, is the only one who suitably has the right to rule and to reign. Peter says, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. It is this concept of dominion and everlasting reign that Paul has in mind. Similarly, Jude says, To the only wise God, our Saviour, be glory and majesty, dominion and power, both now and ever. Amen. This dominion is acknowledged by the saints in heaven. Revelation 1 verse 6, To him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth, those in the sea and all, they will all acknowledge in the final day that blessing and honour and glory and power be unto him that sits upon the throne and unto the Lamb forever and ever. Heaven will be that occasion where all of creation praise the Lamb that was slain. They praise the Lord Jesus Christ who's given this name above every name. They praise the triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Ghost, who alone is the only potentate, and who alone belongs honour and dominion and power everlasting. Glory does not belong to man, it belongs to God. This is the doxology that Paul presents to us as we approach the end of this letter. But such a knowledge of God should not be abstract. It should not be theoretical. It should be intensely practical. And so as I close today's broadcast, let me just make some concluding comments of application. 
To those of you listening who do not know the Lord, who do not know the Lord's grace, you are those who are unsaved and lost in this world. As we contemplate God, I I must tell you this is the God with whom you will have to do. This God is not imaginary. He is a self-disclosing, a real and true being. He is not a God of our imagination. He has manifested himself in history, the history recorded in the Word of God, that demonstrates God not as a force but as a personal being, altogether unlike us. He is immortal, we are mortal. He is supreme and sovereign, we are subject to him. He is unapproachable in his holiness, and we are filthy in our sin. If he would mark our iniquities, none can stand. But Christ Jesus came into the world. In John chapter 1, verse 18, it says, No man hath seen God at any time. The only begotten Son, which is in the bosom of the Father, he hath declared him. You see, the gospel of Jesus Christ is about how the unapproachable God receives sinners. It's about how the immortal God dies. It's about how the sovereign God places himself under the rule of men like Pilate and Herod. Sinner, if you would see glory and life, then you must come to God in the person of Christ. God, to whom no man can approach, is a God that invites us to come to him, to fellowship with him. But not upon our own righteousness, not upon our own goodness. For we have nothing to offer God, but we are invited to come to God through the mediator, through the person of Jesus Christ. And through him, we then can come to know fellowship with God. It is our great hope that having been saved by grace, knowing our sins forgiven, that we will then enjoy the power and the dominion of God forever and ever. The joy of eternal life is offered to all of those who come to trust in Christ. And so, as you contemplate God today in this broadcast, I urge you, I I ask you, that you would give your lives to Christ. Run from your sin and find refuge in the Saviour. And so, that is the God with whom the sinner will have to do. But to those of you who know the Lord... There is words of challenge and comfort that comes in light of the character, the attributes of God. The sense of challenge comes to us afresh in the knowledge that God is alone worthy of our worship. We are to fall before him. That's the concept of worship, bowing before God. Worship is not trivial. It is not something we enter into casually. We should beware in our praying. We should beware in our praise, reminding ourselves that we are coming before the Lord. He is great and we are small. He is holy and we are not. We ought to come with reverence and godly fear. The wise man in Ecclesiastes chapter 5 says, Keep thy foot when thou goest to the house of God. And be more ready to hear than to give the sacrifice of fools. For they consider not that they do evil. Be not rash with thy mouth, and let not thine heart be hasty to utter anything before God. For God is in heaven, and thou upon earth, therefore let thy words be few. 
Now we understand in the New Testament we are told to come boldly. But at the same point, we come boldly with a reverence. We come before a great God who is worthy of our praise. Therefore, let us come with that sense of profound reverence in the presence of God. That's the challenge. What is the comfort? Well, in light of what Paul says here, there is tremendous comfort that God is in control over all things. He is sovereign over the little matters of life and the great matters of the kingdoms of the world. There is great sorrow in the news. Every day we are confronted with news of chaos, accidents, disasters, the wicked reigning. And so the child of God can become discouraged. They can despair. We must remind ourselves again that God is the King of kings and the Lord of lords. He is the one to whom honour and power, dominion belongs. God is not out of control. God is at work. He's at work in the kingdoms of this world and he's working his will out for his glory and for the good of his people. There was a time in the history of Israel, Jehoshaphat was the king in Second Chronicles, and there was enemies that came against the people of God. And Jehoshaphat stands in the congregation and he prays and he says, O Lord God of our fathers, art not thy God in heaven and rulest not thy over all the kingdoms of the heathen? And in thine hand is there not power and might so that none is able to withstand thee? There's Jehoshaphat acknowledging in his own words the words that Paul expresses centuries later. And as Jehoshaphat contemplates the glory of God, he says, O our God, wilt thou not judge them, that is his enemies? For we have no might against this great company that cometh against us. Neither know we what to do, but our eyes are upon thee. We are to fight the good fight. We are to go into the world. We are mindful of the challenges we face. We are mindful of the wickedness all around us. But we must not allow ourselves to fall into despair and depression and doubts. We must live in the confidence that we serve a God who is on the throne, a God who rules and a God who reigns, and a God who is working all things out for the glory and honour of his name. Dear Christian, do not despair, do not lose hope. Have your confidence in God. Study God as he's revealed in the word. And as you come to know your God, may your hearts be strengthened and encouraged. And may we praise him day by day. May the Lord bless his word. Amen. Thank you for taking the time to listen to this episode of Let the Bible Speak from Malvern Free Presbyterian Church. If you'd like more information about the gospel or the church, please call 610-993-3170 or email malvernfpc at yahoo.com. We extend an invitation to all to join us as we worship the Lord each week. You will be made very welcome. The church is situated at 80 Mallon Road, Malvern, Pennsylvania, at the junction of 401 and Mallon Road. We meet for worship on the Lord's Day at 11 a.m. and 6 p.m. A Bible study and prayer meeting is also held on Wednesday evening at 7 p.m. We preach Christ crucified.